Amen. And wow. You know, I keep trying to find an instrument Roland doesn't know how to play, but um, so far, unsuccessfully. Hey, I'm really glad you're with us. Uh, we're continuing with Holy Week. This is what we're doing for the uh, season of Lent. We're walking through Holy Week with Jesus. We're going to be doing that again today. In Mark chapter 11, we're going to be looking at a story that I'm positive you've probably heard before, even if you're not real familiar with the Bible. This is one of those that kind of is out there that we talk about from time to time. Um, so I want to look at this story. I want to talk about maybe what it means for us, how we should feel about it. And then I want to tell you a story about the Middle East uh, in our recent trip there. Thus, the Jordanian scarf, which I uh, love. Thank you. A clap for the scarf. Um, <laughs> let me ask you this question. Have you ever had an idea pop into your head and like the rational part of your brain instantly says, well, that's a dumb idea. But the other part of your brain says, I'm totally doing it. Am I the only one who has this? Like this happens to be on the regular. So uh, while I was prepping for this sermon, I had one of those uh, pop into my head. And uh, the passage we're going to look at today is this moment where Jesus, he walks into the temple and the Bible says that he starts overturning tables. And we're going to talk about why he does that and what it means and all that sort of stuff. But the first thing we have to acknowledge is just, it seems a little bit out of character for Jesus, Right? This is weird. It's not what you would expect from Jesus. You're, he's not the guy that you would expect that, like, if he gets mad, he's going to start throwing stuff. And yet that's what he does. So I was thinking about the story, and this idea popped into my head um, where it was like, I should demonstrate it. <laughs> and then I thought, well, that's a dumb idea. That is total pandering. It might cheapen the art form of preaching the word of the Lord, right? Um, and then I thought, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> um, so uh, what we have here is a table. <laughs> All right, let's... Okay, we have a table and we have some coins on it like the money changers had in... Uh, well, the Bible says is Jesus walks into the temple and he sees these tables and, you know... <laughs> The thing about it is, like, it feels like a pandering sort of thing. Like, if you're, like, an amateur preacher and you're not real confident in the sermon, then you'd do something like this so people would remember it, right? Um, but, uh, you know. So the Bible says he walks into the temple and he sees these, these uh, like, tables like this. Um, do you remember, like... <laughs> I think it was like two weeks ago. You remember when Roland was throwing out Oreos to the crowd? Now that is pandering, right? <laughs> this is just an illustration, right? So, okay, so here's what the Bible says. He walks in and he sees these uh, tables and they have money on them. And it says he overturns the tables like this. Let's see how we do this. <laughs> While we were practicing this, I have to tell you, Kyle Collins got it all the way around and it landed on its feet. So it was a full week in the office. Um, 
pretty dramatic, right? That's the sort of thing that you notice if somebody does that. Uh, how do we reconcile this with Jesus? I mean, half the time he's telling people, hey, please don't tell anyone what I just did for you, right? Half the time he's trying to keep his identity as the Messiah of God a secret. And so this idea that he would walk into a crowded place and do that, like this attention-grabbing moment, how do we reconcile it? It means something. It means something even more when you read the verse immediately before this story. We're in Mark chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 12. But in verse 11, it says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple courts and he looks around at everything, but it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the 12. And so he, he goes to sleep. But it's like he goes into the temple and he's just like taking it all in. And he's like, oh, I'll be back. You'll see me tomorrow. So this was not some impulsive moment. This was not just some moment of anger. This was a strategic and purposeful outburst that was designed to elicit a response from everyone watching. What in the world motivated this rowdy gesture? Here's what I want to suggest. Um, when we understand the story, understand what's going on here, and see the intensity with which Jesus is interacting with something I think it should get our attention. It maybe should scare us a little. It certainly should inspire us in our relationship with God. But I think most importantly, and this is, I think, his goal, especially with his disciples, is it should direct us. It should give us some direction as we are seeking to live out this faith. So what I want to do is dive into the story and just see what is behind these actions. It's actually a story that starts in Mark 11, verse 12, with, of all things, breakfast. Look at this. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. So the first thing we need to know about this story is it is sandwiched in the middle of another story. So the way Mark writes this, these are all connected. There's this fig tree story part one, then Jesus is going to be in the temple, and then there's fig tree story part two. And so they're connected, and they're all explaining and illustrating the same basic thing. We cannot understand uh, the, the temple story without also understanding the fig tree story. So Jesus comes along this tree, and it's probably towards the end of March is the time of year that they are there, and he sees leaves. It is early for leaves on a fig tree at the end of March in the Middle East. The other thing you need to know about fig trees is apparently the fruit buds first, and then the leaves come a little bit later in the season. And so when he sees the leaves, what that would indicate is in the life cycle of a fig tree, if there are leaves, there should have already been figs that had budded, but he goes to look for these figs, and there's none there. There's nothing. There's no fruit. So he curses the tree, which is an interesting response, and then and he keeps walking. Now, is this just like a bad day for Jesus? <laughs> right? Is he just upset? Like he, uh, no, not in the least. This is strategic. This is purposeful. And after he dies and rises from the dead, everyone understands what's happening. What's happening is this. This fig tree has a discrepancy between its outward appearance and the underlying reality. 
So the presence of leaves means there should be figs, but the the tree has this appearance of fruitfulness, but there is no fruit. That is actually the theme for this entire day of Holy Week. The theme is things that should be bearing fruit but aren't. He's about to go to the temple of the living God, the center of God's people on earth, the symbol of God's presence on earth. And this fig tree and the religious establishment that ran the temple had a lot in common. Like, like this was very obvious in the temple. What we're going to see is Jesus responding to things that should be bearing fruit, but they aren't. And honestly, I think his actions, like they, they make me a little nervous. I think they should scare us a little bit. This is intense. It's intended to be intense, but I think it should also really inspire us in how we relate to God, and ultimately, it should direct us. So, he curses this fig tree, and the disciples think, well, that's weird, but hey, let's not dwell on it. We're going to go to the temple. It should be fun. It takes a turn. Verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So Jesus is in the outer court of the temple. It's called the court of the Gentiles. You can think of the Jewish temple as like concentric circles. And the further out you get, the more people are welcome. In the court of the Gentiles, virtually everyone was welcome to come and worship God. And as you got closer and closer to the center of the temple, which was the Holy of Holies, only certain people were allowed to go in there. Only the religious elites were allowed in the very center. And so part of this area that he is in, it is the part of the temple that is supposed to be the most welcoming. It is the the place where anyone can come, no matter who they are, and they can worship the living God. Only here's the thing. The high priest of the day, Caiaphas, and like the people that he worked with, they had taken this area and they had turned it into this marketplace. They did that for two reasons, both of which were kind of practical. You couldn't pay the temple tax with Greek or Roman coins. So you had to take your normal money, which was used for commerce, and change it into the Jewish shekel so you could pay the tax to worship at the temple. The other thing they were doing is they were selling animals for sacrifice, which was a part of the worship of God. And so you could bring an animal from home if you had an animal, but there was a lot of rules about what constituted a legitimate sacrifice. And if you brought your own animal, you ran the risk of the priest looking at it and saying, well, this is not an acceptable sacrifice. And then you'd be out. You'd have to find something else to do. So the easiest thing to do, and what most people did in Jesus' day, is they'd show up to the temple and they would purchase there a pre-approved animal that was already legitimate and acceptable is a sacrifice. Now here's the problem. Neither of those two things are inherently bad, but in both instances, there was a tremendous amount of fraud, um, and it was happening in a place that was supposed to be the place where all people were welcome to worship, and instead it had turned into this marketplace that was exploiting and taking advantage of poor people. 
So instead of this place of welcome for all people, it had turned into a, a huge barrier for worship that kept both Gentiles from being able to worship God and also made it incredibly difficult for the poor to worship God. So Jesus quotes a couple of Old Testament prophecies, the most notable of which is from Isaiah 56. He says, this temple was intended to be a house of prayer, and those last three words really matter, for all nations. And he's drawing attention to this idea that the temple was supposed to be a welcoming place, not a barrier. And again, it's, it's the same as the fig tree. There's this discrepancy between the outward appearance of the temple of God and the underlying reality. And when Jesus takes it all in for the second time, he looks at it and he thinks about it and he decides to do something very dramatic to catch everyone's attention. And I think the intensity of this, it should scare us a little bit. It's intended to. But I think ultimately it should inspire us and direct us. You see the people in Jesus' day, uh, if you've been reading Mark up to this point, they're going to react the way you would expect them to react. Verse 18. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, they heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. So you have on one side the chief priests who are nervous about this and they want to get rid of him. And you have the people who are amazed because it appears that Jesus is fighting for them. He's righting a wrong. You know, very clearly in this moment, Jesus picks a fight here. And, and it was absolutely his prerogative to pick a fight. It was his right. I mean, he is the fullness of God on earth. That is his temple, right? And so if he wants to rearrange the furniture, that's, that's his business. But he picks a fight with the religious elites, and he stands up for those who were exploited. I read this quote uh, from a commentary on Mark uh, describing what Jesus is actually doing. Uh, she writes, the temple is being cleared out, not cleansed. It's not being prepared so that it will be better, but it's being symbolically and prophetically closed down. I think that's probably pretty close to true. That's, that's probably pretty close to what's happening. For a few thousand years, everyone understood that God's presence was uniquely at the temple, that that's where he dwelled. Jesus is about to change the game. And when Jesus dies and he raises from the dead, he's going to move the presence of God and it's never again going to be in the temple, but it's now going to be in his church. And I don't mean like these buildings, I mean you and me. It's going to be in the people of God, that God dwells within us. We are the temple of the living God. And so he's like establishing a new home. And that's part of what's happening here with this Holy Week of what he's doing in the temple is he is moving the location of God's presence from a, a location on earth to in the hearts and in the souls of the people who follow God. And I think that's part of why this should be a little bit intense to us. It should scare us a little bit because we see in him just how much he cares about the identity of his dwelling place on earth. He's intense about it. It bothers him when it doesn't line up with what he is about. And so now I'd like to understand, well, now we're like, we are that temple? Makes you a little nervous. More on that in a, rem in a minute, but do you remember the fig tree? You didn't forget the fig tree, did you? Okay, so that's the second part of the story. Look at what happens in verse 20. 
In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, this fig tree you cursed has withered. Now, arguably, this is a much more dramatic gesture than flipping a table, but I don't know how to wither a fig tree, so I opted <laughs> for the whole table thing. But um, So uh, lots of questions at this point. The fig tree, the temple, what is happening here? Mark answers none of them. Instead, he ends this story with these words from Jesus. Verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. This is a verse we don't want to take out of context. The context of this is bearing fruit, right? And instead of answering all the questions that people had about the temple and what just happened there, Jesus says, let me tell you about the new temple. And he turns his attention to what is going to animate and give life to us, his followers. He talks about depending on God. He gives them a preview of what the new temple is going to do to bear fruit. And it has to do with faith and trusting God to work through us. He's telling us that's what's going to give this new temple life. Is there faith in God's work? And he ties it to, to faith and to dependence. And also, really interestingly, he ties it to forgiving one another. Isn't that fascinating? I, you know, I think this story, it, like, there's a reason why it, it stands out. I, like, everything about it is memorable. Even if I didn't flip this table, right? You probably would remember this story because when you see what Jesus is doing here, like, it is designed to elicit a response. And it's hard to read it if you know who Jesus is, if you know what he's about, and you see him do this thing without, like, it sticking in your memory or in your heart. It, it elicits an emotional response, or at least it did from everyone there, and I think it needs to also from us. I've mentioned this, but I think the first emotion that, that maybe we could bring to the story is, uh, I think the story should scare us a little. Now, let me qualify that. This is really important. I do not mean that we should be scared that God is going to get us. Not in the least. We shouldn't be scared that like Jesus is going to curse us like he cursed the fig tree. We are his children. We are deeply loved. One of his followers, John, writes later in his life, he says that because of his perfect love, it drives out in us the fear of punishment. So as his children, we have no fear of punishment from him. We have no fear that he's going to curse us or that he's going to remove his blessing for us. We're not doing things so that somehow he, we could get a blessing from the hands of our God. We are deeply loved, and because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, we do not fear punishment. This is called the doctrine of grace, and it's something that we celebrate, that we worship him for, that we enjoy, and we rest in. But here's the thing that does scare me about this story. It is so easy for faith communities to become a barrier between people and God. That's scary to me. You know, we can talk about the evils of religion, and we do from time to time. But, like, we have to acknowledge it is not those people. Like, we are just as susceptible to being a barrier 
between God and other people as anyone. And it's so easy for us to fall into this mindset where we think that God has entrusted us with playing the role of gatekeeper, deciding who gets to him and who shouldn't get to him. And we read this story, and it just really seems like God, Jesus especially, really does not like that. Like he doesn't coexist well with spiritual gatekeepers. And I think what Jesus is saying to his followers is he's saying, listen, God's people are supposed to be an invitation to the world. That's why they exist. An invitation to the world, not a barrier. And what keeps me up at night, like both as a pastor, but also just as a Christ follower, is that we would inadvertently do something here at Pulpit Rock that keep people God loves from finding him because we're capable of that. And that's scary to me. That's why I, I, like I think we have to be committed to uncovering and overturning every prejudice we might carry. We have to push for honesty in relationships. We have to welcome everyone. We have to not just welcome, but seek out anyone. Because if we don't stay on top of this, there is story after story in the Bible of humans who trend towards religious exclusivity. They start thinking and playing the role of gatekeeper. You know, what scares me about that is not that God would curse us, but what scares me about that is what happens in Holy Week. You understand Jesus, he is God incarnate on earth, right? And so he is in his temple. And there is this moment in Holy Week, it's not in this story, but it's later in the week, where the, the presence of God Jesus Christ walks out of that temple and he never comes back. And his presence is just gone for good. And what's so scary is the religious people, the people who ran the temple, they never even noticed. And there's this thing about God that he just, the God who is after the heart of every person, he just does not coexist well with human religious gatekeepers. And so I think we need to stay a little bit scared of that mindset. We should never assume that we're not capable of creating those same barriers. We have to stay on top of it. We can't become complacent. We should always be aware. We should be stretching ourselves so that we never sit in that seat. So that's the first thing this does to me is it just makes me nervous. Gosh, I would hate for us to be that. But uh, there's another emotion that I think we should have, and this is also important. Um, I think this should inspire us a little bit. Like it should inspire us when we realize that we're not just the religious people in the story, but we're also the poor people in this story. And what we see is just how much Jesus fights for people. And that includes us. Like he hates the idea that somebody would keep you out. He hates that. And this story should like inspire us to set aside our shame, to run to him, to be confident in his love because we realize that he is fighting for us, that Jesus is the sort of God who would flip tables on everyone who would condemn us and keep us from him. Your access to the God of the universe is unfiltered. And these barriers that, that crop up between us and God, even barriers that other people put there or we ourselves put there, that Jesus is about the business of flipping those barriers so that we can be connected with God. He is the one who does it. And it's not just a picture of Jesus picking a fight, but it's a picture of Jesus fighting for you and for me. 
That's inspiring to me. It makes me trust. It makes me lay down my shame. It gives me hope. And I think the other thing it should do is it should give us some direction. Right? This story should give us some direction in life. It gives us some clarity. Jesus is showing us how to love our neighbors around us. And it's not just like a, like a sweet and soft sort of love. It's an aggressive love. It's a love that fights for people who have been left out. It fights for people who are living separate from God. And he is inviting us into that same sort of love for those around us. Now, I wanted to say this today. I, like, I realized this. At Pulper Rock, we talk a fair amount about doing stuff for other people, right? Like, we, that's something we talk about quite a bit. Uh, there's, like, this legitimate fear that this can happen to us, that we become so focused on doing things, like, for others or doing things for God, that we begin to get unbalanced and we start having our identity in that somehow we're doing stuff for God or we think that that is what God cares about, that we're, what we do for him. I want to say this really clearly to you. God cares about every heart here. He cares about your heart. And if all you ever do in your life is rest in his love and in his grace, that is enough. It is the doctrine of grace. You have nothing to earn, and that's not why we do things. Because we're trying to earn blessing or avoid punishment. It is grace, and we rest in that, and that is enough. And also, the Bible tells us the identity of this God that we love and that loves us. And he is a God who is constantly pursuing people. He is a serving God. He is a missional God. He is a sent God. And we have grace. We have nothing to earn from him. And we rest in that grace. But we also have this constant invitation from him to participate in the things that he's doing just because he loves doing stuff with us. And while it's true that we can find God like just resting in his love, just in the quietness of silence and meditation and discipline and all that sort of stuff, we also can find God at the ends of the earth in the desperation of the poor, fighting for those who don't have a voice. He's both. And I think Jesus is this picture of these two paths that God has given us to find him. And it, it, both are legitimate. It is a legitimate spiritual path to be a monk, right? To, to, to live that sort of monastic life, focused on devotion, focused on discipline, focused on closeness with God. That is legitimate. But it also is a legitimate spiritual path to be an activist. And we find God there too leveraging your resources, fighting for those who don't have a voice. I think what we see in Jesus is we see the merging of these two mindsets. There's that balance of devotion and action. And so we see Jesus withdrawing to the wilderness, living like a monk, pressing into the love of his father and just connecting with God in that way. Absolutely. But we also see Jesus flipping tables. And we see Jesus fighting for those who don't have a voice, connecting with his heavenly father that way. And so I think we can be a monk or we can be an activist. I think the biggest danger for us is that we are neither a monk nor an activist. And we just kind of become a fan of God. You know, and we're not pressing in in either direction. I think that maybe is how religious gatekeeping starts to take hold. The story gives us some direction. 
We are the temple of God. And I think part of what that means for us as individuals, I, I would maybe describe it this way, is we need to become like activist monks, you know? I think that's what we see in Jesus, finding the grace of God in the quiet, finding the grace of God in the fight for others. That's the direction of our lives. I want to close uh, just with a story of some activist monks that I'm, I'm getting to know um, in the Middle East. Uh, we, earlier in February, got to go visit uh, Tyre Church, and they're doing stuff all over the Middle East. We were in Jordan and also in Lebanon, uh, setting up these lighthouses to minister to refugees and displaced people. Um, and it is the merging of devotion and activism in a really beautiful way. Uh, we were in Lebanon, which is a very small country. If you don't know, it's about the size of Delaware, um, which I don't know if that helps. <laughs> you know, Delaware. None of us do. It's small, okay? Um, their population has increased by 25% in the last few years just from refugees streaming across their borders, escaping violence, escaping death, many of whom are from their neighbor, Syria. Think about this, like 25% population increase. It, that is a staggering number in a relatively short time. Lebanon's beautiful. It's right on the coast of the Mediterranean, and uh, like, it, like it's a coastal country, so you have all this beautiful coastline, but then there's a mountain range, and then it dips down into a valley, and there's another mountain range, and that mountain range is the border with Syria. And so what has happened is a lot of Syrian refugees have come over those mountains, and they've come down into the valley in the middle of Lebanon called the Bekaa Valley. Um, and there's all over the Bekaa Valley these villages of shacks and tents that have kind of sprung up overnight, and they exist in these little communities of a few hundred or so. I have a couple pictures of it. Um, so you have people who had a life, middle-class people, uh, and now for years they've been living in these makeshift tents all over the Bekaa Valley. So our partner, Tire Church, goes into situations like this where there's displaced people, and they set up these lighthouses um, by these camps, and they begin just providing some things for refugees that honestly nobody else is providing for them. The UN is there doing a little bit of help, but uh, the Christian church is doing the rest. They create jobs, they educate children, they provide childcare and preschool stuff, they do medical care for these refugees, they share the gospel, they just are doing all sorts of things that no one is doing for these refugees, and many of these things are things that the refugees are not allowed to participate in the countries that they've now uh, immigrated into. Um, we got to spend some time in one of these camps uh, that they'd spent a, a few years working with and had tea with the leader of this camp. Each camp kind of has a, a figure who's like the mayor. Um, and it was such an honor because we knew this, that for a Christian group to establish credibility and trust with uh, Syrian Muslim refugees, it just takes some time, and they've taken some time, but they've established some trust with them. Eventually, the leader of this camp that we visited um, he uh, allowed the children from his little camp to go to the nearby lighthouse to, for school. They, they weren't able to go to the public schools in, in Lebanon, and so uh, now there are these Muslim kids coming to this Christian school on a regular basis. Only here's the thing. The lighthouse is situated right down the street from the camp, um, and right like between the, the camp and the lighthouse is a mosque. Um, and there's not a lot happening at the mosque for these refugees, 
Um, but there's a lot happening at the lighthouse. And the local imam who works at that mosque is seeing these kids go back and forth to this Christian school, these Muslim kids. And so it gets him upset. And one day, when our friends from Tire Church are in the camp, uh, working with the people there, uh, he decides to go down and to confront them. And so there's this Muslim imam coming down the street. Uh, the pastor we work with, his name's Muhammad. He was a little nervous about it. You know, it's a situation you want to diffuse. Um, and he said they were standing there trying to figure out what to do. And before he could do anything, the leader of the Syrian refugee camp, this older Syrian Muslim man, uh, kind of gets in the face of this imam. He kind of wags his finger at him and he says, you have no mercy on us. And now you want to stop these people from having mercy on us. And he kind of chases him off and sends him back. Now, what do you call it when a Syrian Muslim refugee defends the church of Jesus? When a Syrian Muslim refugee protects and fights for the temple of the living God because of the mercy that he's experienced. It's fruit, right? It's fruit. It's what Jesus has been looking for. It is this devotion to follow God, lining up with this tangible mercy of activism fighting for someone on the margin. It's Tyre Church living as activist monks in their community, flipping some tables for people that nobody cares about. And you have this picture of, of Jesus looking at this fig tree, hoping to see fruit, and looking at the temple, hoping to see fruit. And he saw none. And he loves us, but he's still looking for fruit. And when we, like the people of God, the dwelling place of God, the temple of God on earth, we don't have anything to earn from him, but he longs for us to bear fruit with him. And when we act like his temple, this invitation to people, we're reaching out to those on the margin with tangible mercy. And we're removing barriers for people. We're flipping tables that have been set up. We start welcoming people with the same welcome we've received. Something remarkable happens. Fruit happens. I know it's a little scary like to, to see the intensity with which our Savior interacts with the temple, but I think ultimately, guys, we got, this is inspiring. This is how he fights for us to ensure we have a place for him, a place with him. And at the end of the day, I hope it just it gives us a little bit of direction to fight for others. Let me ask you this question. When it comes to balancing these things, maybe you're more on the end of the spectrum of devotion. Maybe that's more what your spiritual life is about, connecting with God, walking closely with him, knowing him. Just a suggestion, but maybe mix in a little activism. Fight for someone on the margins. Fight for someone that nobody else sees. Flip a few tables. You'll be healthier. You will bear more fruit. Maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. Activism comes easy to you. You like to flip tables. You know, it, you've got to mix in the other piece, connecting with God, 
because there's this danger that you would overlook the fact that the welcome is for you too. And press into that and rest in his love. Or maybe you're caught in the middle. Neither a monk nor an activist. I think that's the dangerous place to be. I think that's where we wind up uh, like working against God inadvertently. Um, you know, God dwells in you because he loves you. You are the temple of the living God. If you have faith in Jesus, that's what you are. Um, you know, when the temple doesn't bear fruit, it's more like a museum. You know, it's nice. It's interesting to look at, but there's not a lot of life in it. You're not the museum of God. You're the temple of the living God. And what that means is you are the walking invitation from the God of the universe that every table has been flipped and every barrier has been removed and we can have access to his love. You were destined to bear fruit. Let me pray that over us today. God, we first and foremost just receive the welcome that you give us. We receive that you fought for us. We are thankful that you fought for us, that you saw us as worth redeeming, that you didn't give up on us. But God, we also want to embody your love for others and we want to fight for them. And so God, I pray for my friends here, I pray for myself, Lord, that we would have that capacity to balance both the connection and the devotion with you and the activism of joining your work in the world. Lord, I pray that Pulpit Rock would be a community of activist monks. We trust you with that, Jesus. Amen.